1: As we continue in our series in Matthew's Gospel and the Sermon on the Mount, we come to two great statements that Jesus makes about you. You, he said, are the salt of the earth. You are the light of the world. It was the winter of 1699, and a stately trading ship, a sailing vessel, was sailing along the southern coast of England 300 years ago this month. As she approached the Eddystone portion of the coastline, the ship's captain tensed. His navigator announced that they were nearing the infamous Eddystone Reef, which had caused untold countless wrecks over the years, costing hundreds of sailors their lives and sending thousands of pounds worth of cargo to the bottom of the English Channel. Now, the reef consisted of a cluster of rocky pinnacles just below the surface, invisible to the eye, but deadly to the hulls, of wooden sailing vessels. The captain knew that the reef, nine miles off the shore of England, was at its worst in the winter, especially during foggy weather. Suddenly, his watchman called out, there's a light just off the starboard board, uh, off the starboard side, captain. The captain stared through the fog at a glowing beacon, and suddenly he realized that the rumors that he had heard were true. Somebody had actually built a lighthouse on the Eddystone Reef. That lighthouse saved his life that night as he ordered the navigator to sail wide around it now the Eddystone lighthouse was built by henry winstanley in 1698 and it was one of the greatest achievements of civil engineering in history it was the first lighthouse built fully exposed to the sea nine miles off the shore the lightkeepers lived there all winter long and their job was to keep uh, the light alive by replacing the 60 candles as they burned down how many times do you think that they had to replace those candles and there was also a great big hanging lantern with a big fire in it and they had to keep it burning while at the same time preserving their own lives from the threat of fire those light keepers in that lighthouse risked their lives that winter in win stanley's lighthouse but the winter of 1699 was the first in centuries that there were no shipwrecks on the Eddystone reef now what difference did that lighthouse make to that ship that night it made the difference between life and death between financial prosperity for the investors and ruin. It made all the difference in the world. And in effect, Jesus, when he calls us the salt of the earth, the light of the world, saying is saying to us, you should make a difference. There should be a difference in the world because you're in it. When people come and interact with you, there should be a difference, an impact made by you because of their interaction with you. Because in both analogies, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world, Jesus lists dangers, that the effect will be muted, the effect will be neutered, that there will be no impact. Now, who is he talking to? He's talking to the people about whom the Beatitudes are true. Now, we've talked about the Beatitudes, the characteristics of members of the kingdom of heaven. It began by by saying, blessed are the poor in spirit, spiritual beggars, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven runs all the way to the end where it says blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In between are a series of character traits that we've been looking at carefully over these last many weeks and we've seen these character traits are to characterize every Christian. There's a brokenness, a humility, a hungering and thirsting after righteousness and after God. There's a mercy that flows from those individuals, a purity in heart and a willingness to go out and be persecuted as long as they can be peacemakers in the world. That's who we're talking about. And he's saying, of those people, the people that 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 is true of, those people are the salt of the earth. Those people are the light of the world. And in this way, Jesus is using his significant teaching technique. It's a remarkable thing. He takes earthly examples, earthly things that we can understand, that we interact with all the time, and uses it to teach us spiritual truth salt. How many of you go through a day without interacting with salt? Probably none of you. And I know that none of you can even survive without light, as we'll make it clear later on, even if you're blind. It's something we can understand. And this is the way that Jesus teaches. He's taking things that we can understand from everyday life, and he's teaching us spiritual truth with it. He did the same thing with Nicodemus when he's explaining about being born again. He takes something that we experience all the time, birth, and says, your conversion to me, your Entrance into the kingdom of heaven is like a birth Nicodemus didn't understand You remember in John 3 and Jesus says I have spoken to you in earthly language be one translation I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe how then we believe if I speak in heavenly language You certainly wouldn't get it then Jesus talks of salt and light things we can understand and he says you are the salt of the earth But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it up on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. That's Jesus' lesson to us. Now, in both cases, both the salt and the light, there is to be an impact. But there is a danger that the impact will be lost. The salt could lose its saltiness. The light could be hid under a bowl. And so Jesus is challenging us as Beatitude Christians to make all the difference, the same difference that that Eddystone lighthouse made to that ship that night. We are to have an impact on the world. Let's look at the first analogy carefully. You are the salt of the earth, verse 13. Now, we interact with salt pretty much in one way these days. But back in Jesus' day, there were two major things that salt did for them. The first, in the days before refrigeration, salt was a preservative. As soon as you killed an animal, a cow or sheep or something, the meat began to deteriorate, especially in that climate. So that within hours, it was borderline whether it was safe to eat or not. But the ancients found that if you rub salt into the meat or into fish, you could retard, you could slow down the decay process enough so that the food would still be good to eat much later. And so in this way, they learned to preserve food. Now, I didn't really know how salt retards corruption, so I looked it up in the Encyclopedia Britannica. I have to learn these things. I'm constantly learning new things. But apparently what the salt does is it prevents the moisture which carries the bacteria from spreading from place to place. And so there's bacteria in one place, and without the salt, it's, it's, it's going to move all the way through that flesh. It's going to multiply. It's going to grow. But with the salt, it doesn't spread. It stays where it is. Now, if you eat salted meat a long time later, it's bad. So it doesn't totally get rid of the corruption, but it retards the process, slows it down. And in this way, it acts as a preservative. But this was before refrigeration. Therefore, you can see how valuable salt was in their lives. If they ever wanted to eat meat, they had to eat salted meat, or they had to slaughter it and eat it right away, right that day. Now, Jesus, of course, is teaching us a spiritual truth here. He's not so much talking about salt as he's talking about a spiritual truth behind it. We, as Christians, are to make an impact on the world, on the society, on the culture around us. That impact is to be significant, as significant as the impact of that salt is on the corruption spreading through that meat. We are to be somewhat of a preservative in the surrounding culture. Now, sin has a decaying effect on society, doesn't it? It has a decaying effect on individual people. It rots us. And since society is made up of people, sin can spread and it can rot a whole society. Christians are to make an impact in slowing that process down. You know that in the days before the flood, in the days before Noah, every single inclination and and thought of the human heart all the time was only evil. And so judgment had to come. God being holy, he brought judgment. Same thing in Sodom and Gomorrah. The corruption had gotten to such a great level or such a great depth at that point that judgment was going to come. It was inevitable. Jesus is saying that the effect of beatitude Christians on the surrounding culture is to slow that process down. And why? So that the work of the gospel can continue to spread. ...so that the influence of the gospel can move. Because if the corruption goes so quickly, there's nothing that the people can do. There's no opportunity to share the gospel. Judgment must come. There's anarchy in the streets. There's no peace. People stealing things from you, murdering you in the streets... ...because the corruption has gotten to that level. Christians have a retarding influence on that corruption. We slow it down. Now, America today is accelerating down a a road of corruption... We all know it's true. We can see it. We see things on television. We read about things that we did not see 20 years ago. We should be shocked. The sad thing is we're not shocked because the thing has been done in a cunning manner by the one who did it, namely Satan and all his evil hordes. But as we look around us, we see the avenues of the corruption. The media, for example, television, satellite TV. We see the Internet. All of these things accelerate the transfer of information, don't they? But if that information is corrupting, then it also accelerates the spread of corruption. Christians are to be salt and light. They're to be salt in that they retard that decay process. But let's not make a mistake here. Things have to be kept in perspective. About a hundred years ago, Christians got confused about their mission in the world. And they began to think that the only thing that mattered was doing this kind of salting in society. They were out there affecting society, opening up orphanages and hospitals, feeding the needy, giving to the poor, etc. And these were ministries that were commanded by Christ and by Scripture. But what did they lose? They lost the effect of preaching the gospel. They no longer saw that it was necessary. They came to be called in later years social gospelers. In other words, they said uh, the regeneration through faith in Christ is not necessary. We don't need to preach the gospel. What we need to do is have an influence in society around us. And in this way, we'll bring in the kingdom. Well, it never happened. So we can't go too far and say that the sum total of all that we are to be as a church is salt in society in this regard that we retard corruption. However, it is an important ministry the church is to do. The church is to make a difference in the spread of corruption around us. Because this church here is here, because First Baptist Church is here, the society around us should be influenced. There should be an impact. And that impact should be to retard or to slow down the decay process. Well, salt is not just a preservative. I would dare say that most of us don't interact with salt that way. How do you interact with salt? Well, it's on your table, right? It's in a salt shaker, and you, you put it on your food. How many of you enjoy McDonald's fries without salt? I, I, I will go back to the McDon- I'll go back to the drive thru and say, now I'll try to say it nice always say, I asked for salt. Would you mind giving me a few little packets? I can't eat fries without the salt. And why is this? Because it doesn't taste the same. Salt is a flavor enhancer, isn't it? It brings out the flavor of the fries and whatever it else is in a fry. I don't want to know what's in a fry, <laughs> but I like them. They taste good. And they taste better with salt, don't they? Can you think of other foods that just taste better when they're salted? There are just a number of them. Salt is a flavor enhancer. And the same was true back in biblical days as well. Listen to Job 6.6. 6. I bet you, you thought I'd never find a verse about this, but it's in there. Job 6.6 6 says, Is tasteless food eaten without salt, or is there flavor in the white of an egg? I refuse to touch it. Such food makes me ill. Look it up. Job 6.6. 6. You've got to salt the egg, the egg white, or else you won't taste it. That's what Job said. Salt is a flavor enhancer. There's a story from the Arabian Nights about a sultan who had three daughters. And he wanted the his daughters to come before the entire court And to give expressions of love for him. He was an egomaniac, I think. So come and tell me how much you love me. And so the first, the eldest daughter came and said, you are the apple of my eye. Well, that was old. But maybe back then it wasn't old. Maybe it was new. You are the apple of my eye. You you are what I like to look at the most. The second daughter said something poetic like, you are a fragrant breeze blowing across the garden. Well, that sounded good too. The third daughter, however, looked at him. And she was the shrewdest, most clever of the three. And she said, you are the salt in my food. And he was insulted by this. He thought, this is... This is terrible. How could you say this in front of all these people? So he was angry, and he told her to go out, go out from the court. Well, several weeks later, she had the opportunity to demonstrate what it is she meant. She connived with the cook and said, I want to cook his favorite meal, but I'm going to cook it my way. And so she cooked the the meal, his favorite dish, without salt. And she served it to him without any salt on the table. But she wore a veil. Uh, He didn't know who she was. And he ate the food, and it tasted, just like Job, Job said, it tasted tasteless. There was something missing. And then she came in and and she presented him with a gold tray and a little container of salt with a spoon. And he salted the food and it tasted good. At that moment, she removed the veil and said, Father, you are the salt in my food. And then he understood. Without it, it was tasteless. Now, what does that have to do with us? I believe that sin has a deadening effect on the soul. I believe the longer you go on in sin, the less anything tastes to you life becomes black and white. It becomes grayscale rather than colorful. That's what sin does. We shouldn't think of it as an accident. It is what Satan intends. Do you understand that God created pleasure? He created pleasure. He created your tongue with different kinds of taste buds to taste different types of flavors. He created your eye to see and discern millions of different shades, subtle shades of color. God is a God of pleasure. We think that pleasure is evil, but what Satan does is he hijacks certain pleasures to entice you into patterns of sin. But what he wants to do as soon as possible is get the pleasure out of it because pleasure is dangerous. It leads to God, he's the giver of it. And so this is what he does. In the screw tape letters, C.S. Lewis talked about this whole thing. Have you ever read the screw tape letters? It's remarkable. It's a training manual from an older demon to a younger demon on how to entice people like you and me into sin. And what the older demon, screw tape, said to Wormwood, his little nephew, as he said, you know, whenever we're dealing with pleasure, we're in the enemy territory, enemy being God. Everything's backwards in screw tape letters. So, enemy territory, any pleasure is God's. This is what you want, Wormwood. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. That's the winning formula. An ever-increasing craving for an ever-diminishing pleasure. The law of diminishing returns. And so life begins to taste like nothing. I have a testimony about that from the great Charles Darwin. Have you ever heard of Charles Darwin? He was the one who started the whole theory of evolution over a hundred years ago. And this is what he wrote. Up to the age of 30 or beyond it, poetry of many kinds gave me great pleasure. And even as a schoolboy, I took intense delight in Shakespeare. Formerly, pictures gave me considerable and music very great delight. But now for many years, I cannot endure to read a line of poetry. I've tried to read Shakespeare and found it so intolerably dull that it nauseated me. I have also almost lost any taste for pictures or music. I retain some taste for fine scenery, but it does not cause me the exquisite delight which it formerly did. The loss of these tastes is a loss of happiness. I was near the end of his life. I don't think it was an accident. Satan was pulling pleasure away from him little at a time till he was nothing but a man who knew nothing about God or the God who gave pleasures. Now, how are Christians to make an impact on this? We... Know Jesus Christ We know the good shepherd And what did the good shepherd say In John 10.10 I have come that they may have life And might have it abundantly We have a joy that the world cannot understand A joy that is infectious A joy that creates a hunger and a thirst For something more And And when we move through the world And people interact with us There's something contagious about us In a positive way Should be anyway Because we're rejoicing in the Lord In all circumstances And we can create We can create a thirst for God By that kind of salty living. It has to do with the way we talk. In Colossians 4.6 it says, Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Isn't that a great verse? Let the way you carry yourself and let your talk be full of grace, seasoned with salt. There should be something of Christ in everything you say. Something of Christ in in the way you live your life. That causes people to want to get close to Jesus great story of the conversion of john bunyan who wrote pilgrim's progress he was not a believer he was actually a blasphemer he says and he went around from place to place fixing pots and pans he was what was known as a tinker and he was in a kitchen one day and he overheard four neighborhood women and they were talking they did not know that he was listening but they were talking and do you know what they were talking about they were talking about the glories of god's salvation through grace in jesus christ that, that was the topic of their conversation. And also how unworthy they were in their sin. And the pleasures of heaven. And how they couldn't wait to be there. And Bunyan wrote, They spake as if joy did make their hearts speak. Joy was moving them to talk. Now, if they had been gossiping about a neighbor, do you think that Bunyan would have come to faith in Christ that day? And he did come to faith in Christ that day. If they'd been gossiping about a neighbor, what would have happened? Uh, Just four women gossiping. If they've been complaining about the high price of eggs, four women complaining. But instead, they let their conversation be full of grace, seasoned with salt, and someone was saved. And he has transformed more lives than just about anyone of his generation, John Bunyan. Let your conversation be full of grace. Now, what is the danger to all this? The danger is that the salt may lose its saltiness. Now, how does salt lose its saltiness? Well, actually, sodium chloride, salt, is very stable. It doesn't lose its saltiness. But what happens is it gets adulterated, mixed with other things, like sand or dirt or other things, and it becomes useless. Jesus says it's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. In the same way, the church, which gets mixed up with worldly ideas, worldly pleasures, worldly entertainment, worldly way of life, is useless. It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out. Can I tell you that in church history... Thousands of local churches like ours have been thrown out as useless. May it never happen to this church. If we don't lose our saltiness, it won't. And the sad thing is, we get drawn into the world, we get drawn into worldly things because we want to please them. We want to avoid the persecution that Jesus just got done talking about, so we become like the world. And what ends up happening? The world does what to us? It tramples us. It's thrown out, no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. We're trampled, we're useless to anybody. The salt must not lose its saltiness. We must continue to be salty. There must be a radical difference between us and the world. And only if there is, will there be power for conversion in that local church. Only as we separate from the world and become more and more different, salty, will we see people come to faith in Christ. We'll see people walking down the aisles, we'll see hear testimonies throughout the week of people coming to faith in Christ. And why? Because you and I were salt that week. We were different. And we left an impact. Only through revival, only through the moving of the Spirit, can we have this kind of pervasive influence in society again. Do you pray for revival? Do you pray that God would make us salty again? Jesus asks a haunting question, doesn't he? If the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? And then the convicting judgment, it's good for nothing. The implication is we should be good for something. And that something is a tremendous impact on the world. Now, the second analogy he uses in verses 14 through 16 is the light of the world. He says, you are the light of the world. Now, salt, its influence is invisible. You can't see it. It's just there. But light is everywhere, and we see it all the time. Piercing and radiant, bringing color into our eyes. Now, what does light do? Light brings information, doesn't it? Light also brings energy, those two things. Information and energy to us. Without it, we get neither. Now, it's strange that Jesus calls us the light of the world, isn't it? Because he himself claimed to be the light of the world. He says in John 8, 12, he says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows follows me will never walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So how is it that Jesus says, I am the light of the world, but then he calls us the light of the world? Well, we are his light in his place. Jesus said, while I am in the world, I'm the light of the world. There was a time coming when he would leave the world and he would leave us behind as his light. To shine in a dark place. It says in Ephesians 5.8. You were once darkness. But now you are light in the Lord. And it says in Philippians two verse sixteen, It says that we are like sh- stars shining in the universe. As we hold out the word of life. We are stars shining in his place. As we offer the gospel. In this dark place. Now how did we who were darkness at one point. How did we come to be light in the Lord? Well that's the miracle of conversion. At one point, we were dead in our transgressions and sins as we followed the kingdom of darkness, it says in Ephesians 2. We were darkened in our understanding and separated from the life of God because of the darkness, the ignorance in our minds and in our hearts. But then the Holy Spirit came and opened our hearts powerfully in a miracle of conversion. And light shone inside us, the light of the knowledge of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And we came to faith in Christ. We were converted from darkness to light. And so it says in Colossians 1.12 that He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of light, into the kingdom of the Son He loves. You were transferred. Do you remember the day that you were moved over? Do you remember the day of your transfer? I remember my day. Before that, it was darkness. I didn't know God. He didn't live in my heart. But then one day, I came to understand the gospel of Jesus Christ, how He had died on the cross, how He shed His blood in my place, and that if I had faith in Him, I would have eternal life. I'd be rescued and brought over into light. And it's been light ever since. So we are the light of the world if we know Jesus. He is the light of the world first. And His light shines through us. Now, light, just like salt, has a variety of ministries. Salt had a negative and a positive ministry, didn't it? A negative and a positive influence. Negatively, salt retarded corruption and was a flavor enhancer. Negative and positive. So also light has a negative and a positive side to its ministry. Negatively, light exposes or reveals or shines on danger or evil. Positively, it shows the way, it illuminates beauty and produces fruit. Let's look at these one at a time. First, in terms of exposing danger. Near Louisville, Kentucky, there is something called the Mammoth Caves. It's an expansive cave system, one of the largest in the world. And during the early days of exploration, they did not understand just how deep and how, how expansive was the cave system. Some spelunkers, that are cave, that's cave explorers, went in with insufficient lighting. And at one point, the lights went out. Now, they had paid out ropes so that they'd be able to get back in. But in, in going back to the, to the opening, one of them lost their way and fell into a 60-foot-deep pit to their death. And why? Because they couldn't see. The light was gone. It had gone out. And so there was danger all around them and they couldn't see it. Jesus alluded to this exact same thing when he talked about the Pharisees and the teachers of the law. He says that they are blind men leaving blind leading blind men. If blind lead the blind, both will fall into a what? Into a pit. There is danger when there's no light. And so also we as the light of the world expose danger, don't we? We do that through the preaching of the gospel. It says on the day of Pentecost, Peter, at the end of his preaching, it says, with many other words, he warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. He is acting as light to expose danger. And what is the danger? It's called judgment day. And on judgment day, we will have to stand accountable for everything we've ever said and done. And if we do not have the atoning blood of Jesus Christ paying for our sins, we will spend eternity separated from God in hell. This is the clear teaching of Christ. It's the clear teaching of the Bible. We, through the preaching of the clear teaching, we are exposing danger. We're warning people of what is to come. The wrath of God is coming. Flee from it through faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. We also, however, expose evil. As we act as light in the world, we show up evil around us. We don't necessarily do it on purpose. We don't point it out, but just how we live. We expose the evil of people who do not love God. And we bring them, I think, to a decision point. We become that fork in the road. People have to decide what they're going to do with their sin. And so it says, in Ephesians 5, have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. For it is shameful even to mention what the disobedient do in secret. But everything exposed by the light becomes visible. For it is light that makes everything visible. We expose evil by the lives we live. So that's the negative side. The positive side of that is that we show the way. Just as in the darkness, that cave explorer explorer fell 60 feet to his death. If he had had the light, he would have seen the safe way. Is there a safe way through this world of sin? Yes, there is. His name is Jesus Christ. For he said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We are his witnesses. We point to Christ. We say, follow him. He'll bring you to the Father. Follow Jesus. We are lighting the way in that way. And by our own following of Christ, by the fact that we're walking after him as his disciples, we're showing the way as well. We're showing the way. We don't just show the way, though. As we preach it, as we live it, we're also pointing to other light, specifically the scripture. It says in Psalm 119, 105, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. I think of Mammoth Cave when I think of that. Psalm one nineteen one oh five, your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Without it, I'll fall into a pit. But with it, I'll know which way to go. And we, as the light of the world, we testify by speaking the words of Scripture. That's all I ever try to do on Sunday morning or in other times. I'm just trying to show the light that is in God's Word. That's all. We show the way, and the way is in Scripture. And also, finally, our ongoing per- uh, fellowship with one another is a form of light, isn't it? It says in 1 John 1, seven, If we walk in darkness... If we walk in light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus purifies us from all sin. So our fellowship with one another is a form of light. People come into our midst and they can see Christ with us. But light doesn't just show the way, it also illuminates beauty. If I were to ask you to close your eyes and imagine a sunset over the Grand Canyon with all of the colors of that painted desert... All of the deep crevices that the Colorado River has cut in there. Can you imagine the beauty that is there, that God put there, that you couldn't see if you had never been able to see, if you were blind? How would you ever explain it to a blind man? How would you explain to a blind man the difference between red and green? Could you do it in words? It's impossible. See, light comes and it gives us information about the beauty of the world around us, doesn't it? I like to think of us as the light of the world in this way we are like prisms. A prism is a triangular piece of glass that takes light and breaks it up into different colors. Have you ever seen them? Well sure you have. You've seen a prism after every rainstorm when you look up and you see God's prism up in the sky. It's called a rainbow. And the light comes through the moisture in the atmosphere and it breaks out to different colors. Red and orange, yellow, green and blue, indigo and violet, they're so beautiful. We take God's character, His spiritual nature, and we break it out for people to see. They can see different aspects of God in the things we do. We let our lives shine so that people can see our good deeds and praise God. They get to know God by watching us. They see perhaps His compassion in the way we minister to people who are needy. They, they see His patience in the way we deal with those people. They, they see his, his, uh, his holiness in the way we put sin to death, and the way we walk through this world unstained, unpolluted by it. They see different aspects of God when they look at us. You are the light of the world. We are like prisms. It says in 1 Peter 2.9, You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy people, a, a, a holy nation, a people belonging to God, that you may declare the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his wonderful light. In other words, as you move through this life speaking about God, imitating Jesus Christ, you are explaining what God is like to a dark world. They don't know it apart from us. You are the light of the world. That perfect process will be seen in heaven. In heaven, according to the book of Revelation, you ought to read it for yourself, in Revelation 21, there are 12 walls, 12 walls and 12 foundations. Each stone had a different color. You have one perhaps catching the light of God, and there was no light in the city except the glory of God, catching the light of God and refracting it to be red, or perhaps green, or maybe yellow. And in the same way, God's perfection, His character revealed in heaven as they shine through us. The final ministry of light is in producing fruit. Do you know what I'm talking about when I say that light produces fruit? Have you ever heard of photosynthesis? Well, you don't need to have heard of it before to realize that you would not be alive today if it weren't for it. As a matter of fact, you couldn't understand what I'm saying. Do you know that there's energy in your brain? It comes from the food that you ate. There's a a biological energy that comes from eating. The sugars, the carbohydrates get up in you and you're able to think. That's why you have to have a good breakfast before a test or something like that, so that you can think. Well, where do you think that food came from? It came from photosynthesis. It came from light hitting a leaf somewhere, or many leaves. And the combination of light plus carbon dioxide and and water turned into sugar, ultimately into fruit. Maybe a pear. Maybe just something a cow likes to eat. And you ate the cow. But the point is that all life comes from photosynthesis. Now, who is it that put together fruitfulness and light? God did it. God did it. Well, Paul puts it together for us in Ephesians 5. He says, the fruit of the light, stop right there, the fruit of the light. So he put them together too. Light comes from fruit, or fruit comes from light. The fruit of the light consists in all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And find out what pleases the Lord. In other words, as you imitate God, as you follow him, you are going to be shedding out light which will produce fruit. The opposite is true as well. Ephesians 5.11 challenges us to have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. Darkness produces no fruit. Light produces fruit. So, what does this mean? As you live your life in front of, for example, other Christians, they will see your good deeds, praise your Father in heaven, and fruit will come in their lives. We shine the light for one another. When a brother or a sister challenges me with a word of scripture or an example, something the way they do, the way they pray, fruit comes in my life. You are the light of the world. Now, how do we let our light shine? That would be a whole other sermon to go through a list of ways to let your light shine. It all comes down to this. Jesus summed it up by calling it good deeds. They may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And as you do good deeds, what is it? It's following the leadership of the Holy Spirit as he... Shows you the way It says in Ephesians 2.10 We are His workmanship Created in Christ Jesus To do good works Which God has prepared In advance for us to do Every day you wake up And He has a list of good works For you to do As you do them Under the leadership of the Spirit You are the light of the world You are the light of the world Follow the leadership of the Spirit And do your good deeds The whole point of this Is that we should be open and obvious A city on a hill can't be hidden God lit us And put us up high on a stand Don't complain that everyone in your office, for example, is watching you all the time to see if you're really a consistent Christian. Rejoice in it. God did that. He lit the light in you and he's putting it up on a stand for everyone to see. Don't chafe under it. Realize that you are the light of the world. Now, by way of application, I just want to ask you two questions. Are you living up to the calling you have received? It says we should make every effort to live up to the calling we have received. Are you living up, up to it? Are you salt and light? When people interact with you, do they see a difference in you? Or do you just laugh at the same jokes, think the same thoughts, follow in the same way as everyone else? We are to be world changers. We are to make an impact.
0: Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes,